Yeah, we're getting we're getting bits and pieces, Nigel. It might be some kind of the internet connection or the sun or or the, the Chinese are jamming our transmissions or something. I don't know what they're doing. <laughs> <laughs> I think other people are using the internet. Oh now. yeah, you're they're right awake. because school has started. So now yes. the so now we're going to have internet connection issues. Hold on, Nigel. I'm going to call you back and we're going to restart this. Okay. Rotations is all about allowing interesting people the opportunity to share their opinions and ideas. Some listeners and viewers may find the ideas and content expressed disturbing or objectionable. Okay, everyone. Hello and welcome back to Rotations. This is uh, the second segment with Nigel Alsop, who is a founding member of the Australian War Animals Memorial Organization. That's organization with an S. So for those of you Americans who are confused, it really means organization with a Z. And um, (laughs) Nigel is a fascinating expert, canine handler, uh, and a person who is extremely well-read on the history of animals and their relationship with people in conflict and in security and how they protect us. And um, Nigel, I'm glad to have you back to talk with Please. us again. Thank you. I, it, we are recording this, at all Rotations episodes are recorded, but you have to understand that Nigel is actually 14 hours ahead of us, so <laughs> we're very early and Nigel is very late. And so, it, it, but, it, but the, through, his, through his yeoman behavior, he is, he's signed up with us so that we can actually have a really good conversation about all these things that most people don't ever hear about, and I think they're just fascinating and heartwarming and, and heroic in nature and epic. So, Nigel, I think what we want to talk about now is just a little bit of review of some notable canines or war animals specifically, we've had, you know, uh, Sergeant Stubby, that was a released animated feature. I don't know that it got a ton of press. I think it was well-received. I don't think it was as widely appreciated for what it is. We had War Horse, another film that was mm-hmm. made, uh, which was fascinating. Um, but, Nigel, why don't you tell the audience a little bit about the canines and war, and war animals that, and, or service animals mm-hmm. that you've been particularly impressed with, just four or five of them to familiarize people with just the nature of their behavior and what they've done that made them so remarkable. Sure. Look, the first couple I'd like to talk about is actually, as opposed to an individual animal, a group of animals. And and um, I've obviously tried to uh, pick with as many American animals uh, for the audience's sake as, as possible. But the, um, the first group I'd like to mention is um, the 25 or so U.S. Marine Doberman Pinsers. Uh, that uh, fought uh, in World War Two in Guam, uh, where there's a, a beautiful statue in Guam of a um, of a Doberman uh, pincer to to uh, honour them. Uh, strangely enough, um, made by a lady called Susan Bahari um, about ten to fifteen years ago, and and I've been to Guam and seen it. It's a beautiful statue, and um, these dogs were fantastic. They were U.S. Marine Scout dogs. They were some of the first dogs to hit the beach. And uh, they they detected Japanese snipers up in the trees um, and enabled um, fellow soldiers then to take these snipers out. They would also find the hidden lairs of um, of uh, Japanese booby traps and snipers. And they probably it is estimated in World War Two or at least the Battle of Guam that the U.S. Um, military uh, estimated they possibly saved up to three thousand marines lives just the 25 dogs there present so uh, there would have been 20 nearly that 25,000 more body bags if it wasn't for these dogs uh, fantastic um you know group of animals by the u.s marine corps 
Of course, as we know now, the US Marine have a, uh, their mascot is a, a bulldog, of course. But traditionally, the Marine dog um, was an actual fact a Doberman Pinta. See, it's, it's interesting, isn't it? Why? So why why is the mascot a bulldog? Do you have any idea? No, I'm not I a Marine. Know I'm a soldier. I don't know. Yeah, yeah. Look, I actually don't know why they have to protect that. A lot of bulldogs in World War One were particularly picked because of their tenacity. And um, even though it's America, the Brit, uh, the British bulldog, as it is, um, was used in a lot of propaganda. And I believe one of the first uh, bulldogs the U.S. Marines had was a gift um, from the Allied forces. And you know, it, it shows on most of the posters a big bulldog chasing a little um, sausage dog or dash hound, as we call them. Um, because that with a Kaiser's helmet on, propaganda was very strong. And animals, strange enough, were used very much in, in propaganda um, in World War I uh, for that sort of same reason. And so I think that's where it's traditionally uh, come from. Um, I'd, I'd hate to guess uh, what number Bulldog uh, we're sort of uh, at at the stage. Uh, in, in Australia, and I, I won't deviate too long, uh, one of our infantry mascots, it's a merino sheep. <laughs> Is it merino sheep? Yeah, sort of, uh, I guess, association with agriculture being uh, one of the world's largest uh, sort of sheep-producing countries. And uh, we're up to, uh, I think, Sam the Ram 17 or something, and uh, he's probably out in the field making Sam the Ram 18 as I speak. But, uh, so well, well, you know that the, the, the U.S. Navy Academy's mascot's a goat. So maybe, you've, yeah, maybe you know about that, the probably, goat. Yeah, the goats are probably the longest serving, um, and, and there is a definite reason why the Navy has a goat as well. Um, it actually stems from tradition. I think everybody associates the Navy mascot with a cat, first of all, um, and obviously there was a law in the 17th um, century that all naval vessels had to have a cat on board for rodent control because uh, obviously if your ship stores uh, were eaten by rodents, um, the, the sailors were starved. So there was a law about uh, having cats that wasn't revoked until the 70s through Hygiene Act. Yet the first animals, um, in fact, the first naval animal to ever uh, hit down here in Australia uh, was a goat. And uh, that was their only force of, uh, uh, source of, of uh, vitamin D or milk, fresh milk. So some of the uh, early naval ships there were some remarks that some of the early naval ships were more like um, they stank like farmyards than navy ships, and they had um, sort of live uh, food. Uh, some of the ships would have cattle on board for fresh meat, you know, after X amount of months. Well, so and you could, also warm your, you could also warm your feet in there. Yeah, with the manure in the bottom. <laughs> yeah, that's right. Your feet get cold, you go down to visit the cow. <laughs> yeah. and, uh, and, and of course, the um, uh, you know, if the people haven't tuned in on the second one and not the first one, they might not know that. <laughs> we have to remind them why. And uh, so, um, the 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 um, second thing, obviously, a goat was was um, useful for in those days. Although it was pretty fatal for the goat, they could use it for leather to repair uh, things on the ship. Um, if required too. So yes, goats have a very, very long history. In fact, uh, one of the first uh, goats um, in America was a mascot British um, Fusiliers goat, which um, fought, um, uh, you know, in, in prior to uh, the uh, the independence. It was actually prior in the Indian Wars. Uh, like I, I guess when you were friendly with England, 
<laughs> or more so than uh, than uh, later on in life. Well, so, so, um, so yeah, goats have been around for years. So Nigel, That's before meant. we before we trend into more canines, let's, let's we'll, we'll do a shout out. The actually on Twitter, there is a Twitter feed that I follow called the Ship's Cat. And yeah. it's actually from the Royal Navy, and it's a it's yeah. it's not a parody. I guess it is sort of satirical, but it's not. It's actually written seriously, as if you're the ship's cat, because I think the Royal Navy still has a tradition of having cats, wow. um, even though their boats are steel, and I think their their food lockers are probably pretty secure from rodents. But um, yeah. but if you're interested, go to Twitter and get on and and follow the ship's cat because it's actually pretty funny because the the cat goes around and you kind of see what would the cat be looking at on these Royal Navy warships as he's cruising around <laughs> looking for different things to do. <laughs> Yeah, so I think that's pretty fascinating about that. Um, yeah, really- and I look, one of the things that um, I, I was um, a friend of mine who uh, works at the uh, Canterbury University in the United uh, Kingdom did a, a specific uh, thesis on on naval cats, and believe it or not, one of the reasons why um, they believe they were so popular, the navy was a very um, sort of shall we say masculine um, job to be in. And with the lack of women, and, and it, it comes across again uh, for reasons of mascots in the trenches in World War One, um, they they believe that um, with the lack of females in the armed forces in those days, usually the only female was a nurse. Um, a, a mascot, particularly a ship's cat, provided that uh, tactile touch, something to love, um, and um, mm. you know it sort of compensated for the lack of women on long voyages. Yeah, the social and human nature of, of people yeah. engaged in a very anti-human process of combat, mm-hmm. and that yeah. that is a huge deal. I that I think that I think that's something people need to know how comforting it is. Uh, we had, of course, it was unfortunate, but we had feral dogs in Iraq, and so we actually had dog patrols that would go out and put those animals down because they were dangerous. But then there yeah. was a program for quite a while in Iraq where, when we would find a puppy, that the veterinarians realized that they could either have uh, clandestine dogs that were not properly looked after, immunized, or they could accept the fact that soldiers were going to find dogs and keep them as pets and then immunize them and get them dewormed and get them taken care of. And so that happened yeah. while I was there because it's almost a natural inclination for people to go find a dog and want to have it around just for the familiarity and comfort of something that they know mm-hmm. that reminds them of normal. And it's unconditional. Yeah, it reminds them of home. Absolutely. Yeah. Mm-hmm. yeah, yeah, yeah. And there was a program. I know. I don't. I didn't follow it very far because I didn't have my own dog. Obviously, we actually had a hedgehog. <laughs> um, we didn't have. We didn't. I didn't have my own dog. But um, they, they were trying to get some of these animals repatriated or patriated into the United States because, and we'll talk about that a little bit later. But just yeah, you know, these relationships aren't trivial, and mm-hmm. and to leave an animal that has been there as a companion for the better part of a year is uh, borders on a moral trauma, actually, in my mind, uh, for a lot of soldiers. And so, maybe we'll we'll get to that in a little bit, Nigel. But can you continue? Yeah. And I don't care if it's American yeah, sure. or if it's Australian or New Zealand. Oh, by the way, we should mention your countryman Peter Jackson and his movie "They Shall Not yeah. Grow Old" because I just finished watching it on that flight to Europe. Mm-hmm. For those of you who have not got much understanding of World War One, you need to watch Peter Jackson's They Shall Not Grow Old because he has taken all his royal archive footage and colorized it, yes, mm. and changed the film speed so it looks like normal motion. So it's like watching a newsreel from today of World War One, and you can see how devastating these battlefields were 
just inhuman places. And if I can put that in perspective, at uh, at uh, Fort Dumont in France, there's an ossuary, which is a, a place where they collect bones. There's 130,000 French soldiers they couldn't identify their bones in that one facility, 130,000 unknowns. At the U American Cemetery of the Argonne Muse, there's 15,000 Americans buried there just from the Argonne Muse campaign. It, World War I was an incredibly horrific conflict. And, and so the fact that animals were there in these really awful conditions, um, it doesn't surprise me that people would seek that kind of normalcy and that kind of terror and horror. So mm-hmm. um, maybe that's a good segue, yeah. Nigel, into talking about some more notable animals in history that you can tell us about. Sure. Well, if we use World War One as an example, uh, if, if, since you led into that, um, I'll talk about one Australian dog, if I if I can, called Digger. And um, Digger. Digger was Digger. Yeah, Digger. with a T as in a spade. Uh, it's uh, Australians were quite often called Diggers um, in uh, World War One, um, as opposed to Tommies or Yanks um, in, in American terminology. They each had a name for itself. And um, the uh, uh, it, it it basically comes uh, we believe because we uh, we we were sent out quite often to dig trenches, mm-hmm. um, uh, you know, and uh, in World War One and got the name. But um, anyway, there was one uh, dog. It was a, a bulldog cross, as I said before, alluded to. Bulldogs are very sort of popular type dogs in, in World War One, and um, it found its way. It defended it. It's a great story because it started off as a mascot and then ended up being a military dog. And finally, very recently, uh, for its heroic act, just a, a year or so ago, um, it was awarded with the Blue Cross Medal for, for bravery. And so it's, it's had a full life. And uh, anyway, this dog attached itself uh, to an Australian unit that went to a place called Gallipoli. And for Australians um, or and New Zealanders, the Anzacs, Gallipoli is a it's uh, about as well known as you know, Little Bighorn is um, um, to America in the sense it's a, it's a very solemn uh, place and we had um, a large percentage, sadly, of our, our soldiers killed there. And Digger survived um, uh, that particular um, battle area, um, was horrendous and was wounded a couple of times over there. And his main um, claim to fame was he could detect gas attacks and would indicate by barking and uh, the soldiers had enough time to put their uh, their masks on, and he saved uh, many a soldier's life. When he left there, instead of uh, having rest, they were sent to the Western Front, and he continued to serve uh, for a year or so at the Western Front. Again, he would detect uh, German soldiers uh, coming over, and uh, likewise, he would uh, prevent gas attacks. In fact, so good at the detecting of the gas attacks and sadly, he had no protection. His skin uh, started to rot, and uh, all the soldiers put all their money together to buy special ointment and cream. And there was even a project in Australia back home where they made digger postcards, and they sold them to make uh, money to buy cream for this dog. Well, this dog um, uh, survived um, World War One and was sent back with his handler, who, strangely enough, have now what we know as PTSD and was given to him as a, a, a companion. Uh, a couple of, about a year had passed, and by the way, I, must, I forgot to mention, during that time on the Western Front, he was shot uh, three times, uh, once through the jaw, 
and survived all, all the shooting uh, as well as a gas attack. Anyway, this dog survived the war, was back in Australia. Um, his handle was still bedridden. Unfortunately, there was a celebration for the end of the war and a lot of fireworks went off. The dog thought the war was back on again. It jumped a fence to go and rescue its handler who was bedridden, unfortunately speared itself on the fence uh, and managed to get to the handler, jumped on his bed and, and died in his handler's arm. And um, that's the story of um, a digger. Mm-hmm. And it's by no means um, uh, a rare story. Uh, New Zealand has another dog called Caesar, which if you compare the two stories, you'd almost think it was the same dog. And um, Caesar did this. Um, Caesar, another bulldog for the New Zealand Armed Forces, um, was trained to, as a what they call a, a Red Cross dog. It would go out into no man's land. It would find a wounded soldier, ignore all the deceased soldiers. It would then um, it would carry bandages and water where the soldiers could self-help. Um, if the soldier was unconscious or alive, it would take an art, rip an article clothing such as a button off the soldier, take it back to the trenches, grab the attention of the medics, take the medics forward into no man's land and they would rescue the wounded soldier. Again, um, a digger uh, was um, uh, eventually uh, found in no man's land next to a a wounded Australian soldier that had been shot by a sniper and indeed uh, digger was in turn shot by the same sniper having the, um, a note in its mouth uh, from the soldier telling them where he was. Wow. Yeah, Nigel, I, I think it's important to note, and I'm sure this is no different from, uh, from Australia, New Zealand, or England with the Victoria Cross, but in the United States military, the highest concentration of Medal Honor recipients lies among medics. So yeah. when you look at, uh, when you look at uh, heroism and valor, um, just consider the fact that more medals of honor are awarded to medics than any other specialty in the U.S. Armed Forces. I'm, I'm, I'm almost certain that's going to be the case in the, 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 the Canadian, the Commonwealth countries. I'm sure it's probably very similar. Because Absolutely. What, in, in fact, it's a thriving the amount of, of uh, conscientious objectives of World War I that ultimately received the highest uh, battle allocated. Yeah, I mean, you, you, you cannot appreciate the absolute danger that uh, that combat medics and certainly a Red Cross dog would endure because their sole focus is to go out and find wounded. They're not looking for personal preservation or self-protection because it's secondary and it distracts them from what their mission is. So they selflessly go out and do these things. Um, and again, an animal that is willing to endure something that would be horrifying and terrifying to go out and try to find a, a hurt or suffering person it's just remarkable to me. It's just a, a, a wonderful story, uh, and it's something that I think is important. And so, yeah. so I think Nigel, that uh, go, I, I, go ahead. And Sarah, break in if you have a question or anything, please. Oh yeah, I'm, yeah. I'm loving the stories. I feel like I'm watching a good TV show. Yeah, <laughs> well, it is a good. I think lighten, so. lighten it up a little bit from <laughs> uh, from there. Can I? Uh, i uh, just tell you a little story of a dog, an Australian dog called uh, Roth. Roth? Um, R-O-F-F. Roth. Um, yes, now, please do. Roth. R-O-F-F, yeah. Um, now, now, yeah. Yeah, well, um, Roth, as I said, um, was uh, a government pincer of, of the German Army, the 1st Jaguar Battalion, actually, which was stationed opposite uh, the Australian troops. 
And um, the um, I, I, the story goes uh, that he must have got tired of eating German sausages and defected, <laughs> and, um, and and ran over to the Australian lines that were were cooking a marvelous stew up. And from that day on, and for two years following, he became um, an Australian dog. And every time the Germans would launch an attack, Rock was the first person there to snarl and and uh, and bark at his uh, previous German owners. In fact, he saved so many Australian soldiers' lives, this German dog. Um, sadly, when he died, right at the very end of, of um, World War One, he was actually taxidermied and, and is still on display in our National Australian Museum in, in our capital city of, of Canberra. Oh, wow. That's, um, what a loyal Australian dog he was. So, and uh, um, I, I guess um, another dog that <clears throat> we alluded to on the, on the first program uh, was Smokey. I, I, I obviously I don't want to take any thunder away from that, but just uh, a lot of things that a lot of people don't realise about Smokey as well is how brave he uh, she was for such a four pound dog. I mean, mm. we've talked about large dogs so far. Um, where she got her, she was received the Purple Cross uh, for her bravery um, mm. in 2015, and. Um, uh, in Australia, because she was an Australian dog, she was born here, yeah. um, and uh, as you know, and and just one little story. They from her, they were, the U.S. forces were uh, in the Philippines, and some Japanese snipers were holding up the advance, and they needed to get a telephone wire across seventy meters of runway. Three American sol- soldiers had already died attempting this, so what they did, they tied the telephone cable around Smokey's body put her in a drain about four inches wide and got her to crawl uh, 80 metres underground until she reached the other side where they were able to connect uh, to an air-to-ground radio and call in a defensive air attack to uh, negate the Japanese threat. So she was a very little... You can imagine, you know, we often think of these large German shepherds and German pincers and bulldogs but this tiny, tiny little terrier was a very brave dog indeed. Wow. Well, I think it's it's telling anybody who's listening, if you just look up Smokey, S-M-O-K-Y, Smokey the War Dog, you're going to find a black and white photo. And again, we've alluded to Susan Bahari's uh, sculpture of it. It's a, a photo of Smokey in, a, in, a, in an American helmet. I mean, she's tiny. Like, she fits completely in that helmet, and her head's popped out of it. The sculpture's actually a re- replication of that. And I, I'll tell you what, Nigel, I'm almost, I'm going to interview Susan, and, but I would love to have a small replica of that sculpture on my desk. I think wow. it's an a, a extremely compelling photo, mm-hmm. and I think when people are listening to this, go, and they will, hopefully I'm going to compel them at work, after they get done doing their grocery shopping online, go look up Smokey. <laughs> The war dog, mm-hmm. and just put, just look at that image. And I'm not sure if Bill took that. Bill is a photographer. I mean, he he was a skilled yeah. photographer. And I'm wondering. Anne asked, my wife is a professional photographer. She asked, did Bill take that photo? Because it is a beautiful photograph. Like mm-hmm. I'm, I want to get that photograph reproduced and have Bill sign it and put it in my office. Mm-hmm. I just love that photo. But so look up Smokey yeah. the war dog. So when you hear about this little mm-hmm. tiny Yorkshire terrier. <laughs> crawling through a pipe under withering fire that's already taken the lives of three Americans so that she can get communications going. I mean, these are just amazing things. And, yeah, okay, so Smokey didn't probably comprehend that she's saving the Americans from the Japanese. She's doing what she was trained to do or doing what she thinks is important to do. But 
it had profound effects. And I mean, it's just a really important thing. And I think that's a wonderful story to lead into purple poppies, Nigel, because I yeah. know a lot about red poppies. Tell us about purple poppies, wounded canines, that sort of thing. Yeah, uh, well, um, purple poppies, um, uh, we sort of de- basically developed their use as a, a war animal uh, poppy in Australia initially. Uh, um, they were used um, in England at one stage uh, by sort of an anti um, sort of war campaign, and, and uh, they were sort of they weren't used properly in the uh, the British League, uh, which I think is something similar in America, uh, Veterans League sort of denounced it and gave us permission to use it as, a, as an emblem uh, for the, basically to sac- for the deeds and sacrifices of, of animals in war. So when you were a red poppy to honour soldiers mm. on Remembrance Day and things like that, now we have a purple poppy that um, remembers uh, all the war animals, not a million of, of them in World War One alone, mm. um, you know, died. And, and that's a very conservative number. Um, and of course, um, everyone thinks World War Two was a mechanised war. There were more animals, more particularly horses, uh, used in World War Two than there were in World War One. On average, about five million horses were used at any one time, wow. at any one day. Yeah. So, um, and sadly, some of the figures from the what was then the Soviet Union um, uh, and China, in particular. Uh, were in existence, the record. So, you know, there could be many millions of more animals that we don't know about. Yeah, I don't so think... the poppy represents all those animals, um, you know, that, that gave the ultimate sacrifice. And, and today, um, and here in Australia, and I know Susan does the same, um, we, we sell poppies, you know, just a few dollars each to raise funds uh, to make memorials to, to one of these war animals. Mm. So I think in the third segment, we're going to get into a little bit about that, about books and how to support these organizations. And I think, and and that's important to me because I was looking as well, you know, we have um, Veterans Day and we have Memorial Day here. And Mm -hmm. I think it's important, at least I will start doing that because traditionally I have red poppies, but this work uh, surrounding our film and surrounding these interviews has compelled me that I think it's appropriate that we get red and purple poppies because I just, yeah. it's it's been an incredibly informative thing for me to really reflect upon these animals. And, and to put this in perspective, the German army, people think about the German army in World War II as being, you know, tanks and trucks. and be, it, They were totally dependent upon horses. If, if they hadn't had and horses, they would never have gotten where they got. No, absolutely, yeah. They, they were yeah. totally horse-drawn when it came to logistics and support. Um, and minus one dog who apparently saw the light and decided to be an Australian, right? So I mean, <laughs> yeah. So well, I guess that was World, was that World War One. I? I forgot about Roth. Was he? Did he, did he decide to leave the uh, the Germans and join the Australians in World War One? Yeah. Okay. Yeah. So yeah. the Germans were down one dog by that time, but 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 by and large, they had millions of animals that had to be there to support their operations, and so. These animals didn't have a choice in this, right? I mean, well, I guess the German soldiers didn't have a choice either. Most of veterans and Japanese no. <laughs> draftees didn't either. But, I mean, literally, this horse, his whole life, all he wants to do is graze around the, the pasture and make little horses with other horses. <laughs> and suddenly yeah. he's in the most horrific circumstances. It, it's, it really breaks your heart in a way. You, you just think, it does, yeah. you know, it what does. are we? And, 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 uh, and, of course, you know, we sort of um, misuse these animals terribly, uh, particularly canines in, in World War II. Um, I mean, some some of them uh, were, were used, um, you know, sort of for horrendous reasons. For example, they were used as anti-tank missile systems 
uh, by the Russians. Um, the Russians um, developed a system where um, they would literally make a dog hungry for a couple of days uh, or longer and only feed it underneath the tank. And once the dog, through repetition and association, learned to sort of eat food under a tank, it was only a small process then to strap explosives on, on the dog's back with a metal antenna. Mm. And when the dog was released, supposedly to a German tank, um, it would run under it because it was hungry, um, and therefore the antenna would hit the metal and explode, and, and it was a mobile anti-tank weapon. Mm. Fortunately, now I do say fortunately, that uh, experimentation didn't last very long because in World War II, the, the Russians used diesel and uh, the Germans used petrol. And, of course, the Russians unwittingly trained all their dogs um, uh, in the training period under Russian tanks, which they had. And the smell of diesel was different to the smell of petrol. Oh, so, I can see where this is um, going. <laughs> the dogs would get halfway out there, turn around and turn around and blow up all the Russian tanks. So the idea was still dropped, but... That was just one of the most stupid ideas uh, <laughs> in, in war. Um, uh, I think um, the Americans invented an incendiary bat, which uh, they was indeed did. Yes, to they did. Yes, they did. In Japan and uh, set fire. So, and 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 of course, a, a pigeon was responsible for the first guided missile. Um, it would sit in the front of a five hundred pound bomb um, and literally uh, tap on uh, on the glass to make the aliens go right or left. Um, because it's been trained to um, to eat food when it's identified a ship um, and when the ship was in the centre of its uh, vision. And, and literally it became uh, the first anti-ship missile. Oh. Uh, had a pigeon in front of it. Yeah. Fortunately, it didn't last very long as well. Um, experiment. Yeah, what Nigel's referring to just on the bats was there was an idea that because the Japanese had largely wooden paper homes, that if they strapped small incendiary devices to bats and released them over Japan, they would want to go roost in the houses. And so if they had time fuses, they could release them over Japan and the bats would immediately go find a house to roost in. The incendiaries would go off, ignite the ignite the houses and start burning Japan down. And so yeah, I mean, it, it, you're using the, you're using our, uh, organic intelligence, basically. This was, you know, yeah. now we use computers that are highly smart that can analyze these things, but that was the idea, was this is a little computer that can be trained to do things. And yeah, it's but these were little animals. So, I mean, yeah. if you want to have a cause, you know, I think it's a really good thing. You can't, I don't think there's anything controversial about supporting animals that have served in war, right? You can have problems, no. you can have issues about war, you can have, you can do all you want, but again, if there's not a more sympathetic group about uh, unwilling combatants or combatants mm -hmm. that get pressed into service, it's animals who serve in war. So if you want a cause and you have problems, this is a good cause to support and, mm -hmm. and their memory and think yeah. about their the wonderful contributions that these animals have made. So, yeah. Nigel, to end this second segment, I want to talk about wounded canines and i want to talk about what has happened in in the progression of care for these animals because i saw it i actually had rudimentary training in the in veterinary medicine before i went to iraq for the third time because it was not uncommon or unknown for a, a military canine to get wounded and we needed to know something about veterinary medicine to start treating them so how did that develop over time and you know where is that science now, what happens? What happens when a dog gets wounded? Not killed, but wounded. How are they cared for when they're in conflict? Yeah, well, the most immediate um, <clears throat> thing that um, uh, both historically and even present day, um, usually the, the section or the platoon a medic would um, 
be responsible for you know uh, humans, but it would also treat uh, the wounded dog, uh, and that's happened um, particularly uh, in the Vietnam era, um, where there weren't any specialists. Now, in the United States and, and um, uh, other countries, um, we now have um, canine uh, or animal medics as well, um, which are basically veterinary assistants. Now, obviously in World War One, going to, to the, uh, the the uh, veterinary corps um, lasted from about the early um, 1900s, 1901, something like that, to about 1947. I think the last um, Australian and New Zealand veterinary corps was disbanded. The United States still has uh, a very professional, large veterinary corps. Um, and the reason most countries disbanded them was just due to mechanisation. But obviously the in those days, in World War One and World War Two, uh, they did sometimes have the luxury of having a vet available, um, mainly through equine treatment more than dogs. But the platoon dog was out with an infantry unit, was solely reliant on a, uh, a medic. And as they are in many cases today, um, uh, in Afghanistan and Iraq and places like that. Um, most dog handlers now, however, are, um, and, and I think this is not only have our dogs increased in their abilities, but our soldiers um, sort of academically as well. Um, uh, um, I have to say, perhaps a lot smarter. And a lot of them are, um, are not just an infantry dog handler, they're also a trained veterinary technician, yeah. um, etc. Um, a lot of the kids of nowadays are a lot smarter and they learn a lot more. And, uh, and these programs are being introduced. So a dog handler himself, uh, he or she, um, is trained to look after their dog. Um, I can tell you from experience, though, it's like if you your own child gets injured, you're better off to let somebody else look after it than yourself anyway. And so quite often the medic would take over from the dog handler uh, emotionally-wise. Uh, but um, the, no, in, in Afghanistan, of course, the United States set up a, a veterinary hospital in, in, I think, just outside Kandahar. In fact, I have for you, um, uh, I'm sending you his details. I spoke to one of the surgeons um, at that base, um, uh, Major Kendall Crocker, and he's more than happy to um, ring you up and email you and speak to you. Nice. And he treated uh, dogs. Um, uh, you know, he's an Australian veterinary officer, but he, he was attached to the United States Air Force. Now, Lackland Air Force Base in, in Texas have a huge training facility. Um, they not only um, uh, train dog handlers, but they train medical staff and medical technicians. And as I said before, the United States Veterinary Corps is a huge organisation because not only do they look after animals, they look after things we eat too, um, you know, such as making sure our food, our soldiers' food is correct and uh, they have uh, in charge of rehabilitation programs as well. So the advancements are, you know, a hundredfold from World War One uh, today. In fact, the dog's got more, far more chance of surviving uh, today than it would have ever had in World War One and World War Two. Yeah, I've watched that. In fact, I watched a dog brought in uh, with uh, SA, with an SAS unit, uh, that's a British yeah. Special Forces, uh, that was involved in a firefight. And that dog was treated in the combat support hospital by the staff as if they were just another soldier. And um, it is amazing. And it is. I think most Americans aren't even aware of the fact. Yeah, the veterinarians, uh, we have, of course, lots of military working dogs in the United States. And um, the veterinarians 
principal role is our sanitarians. I mean, they are the ones you, when you go across the United across the oceans to fight somewhere, you can't just take all your food with you. So you end up buying a lot of food locally mm-hmm. and the veterinarians are charged with making sure that those food sources are up to the same standards that the FDA and department of agriculture want to have so that people don't get sick. They also spend a considerable amount of time doing, um, civil affairs projects and making sure that locals have properly immunized animals and dewormed animals and that they can educate them about how to get better production out of their animals. And so there's a lot of humanitarian work that Army veterinarians do in addition to taking care of military working animals. I will tell you one story to close this segment, though, that I think you'll like, Nigel. We had a um, therapy dog by the name of Sergeant First Class Bo. Something other people should know is that we tend to give rank to our military working dogs. Mm -hmm. It helps us identify them as part of the military, so they often wear a vest with their rank. Soldiers like to put patches on them and other things. And 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 so our therapy dogs were very effective in the post in the um, combat stress control units. So a, a soldier would go through something traumatic, we would actually use the the sort of the, the term we should go send them to pet the dog. And literally what we mm. wanted to do was get them over because what the dogs are trained to do is sense stress. Mm. And the dog would come over, sit by the person who is having an issue. And the person would naturally want to start petting the dog. And after about 20 minutes, then the psych social workers could come out and have a conversation with him because they were calmed down and they were readjusted because the dog's sole purpose was to allow himself to be petted and allow him to comfort those soldiers. Well, what happened was, is a lot of soldiers went and talked to combat stress control mm-hmm. and inevitably they'd send letters home about about Sergeant First Class Bo, mm-hmm. who happened to be a very nice Labrador. Anyway, the, the and I talked to Bo many times. Anyway, Bo <laughs> eventually started getting lots of things sent to him, care packages. <laughs> well, if there's one thing that U.S. Army veterinarians are, com- are compulsive about, it is proper weights and, and, and confirmation of their dogs. And so they were forever having fits about the fact that Sergeant First Class Bo is the fattest Labrador retriever <laughs> on the planet because soldiers would bring dog treats in. They had to build a special room for Bo with all the toys and food that he was getting from, from overseas because he had such a profound effect on these soldiers. And so they would be yeah. slipping him treats and the veterinarians mm. just you can't keep feeding Bo because he's too fat. And I thought, <laughs> Bo is the happiest Labrador on the planet, right? <laughs> so anyway, I, I, I just, like I say, I think that People just need to be aware of these relationships because they are super critical and important. And so, Nigel, do you, do you have time to do a third segment? Because I think there's some important stuff to talk about there, too. Sure. Look, look. one little thing I'd like to end sure. this segment. I'm going to have a fight. And I, I know you spoke to my friend uh, Ron Ronaldo who, and uh, John Burnham, who, who were um, uh, very at the head in the U.S. Of, of trying to get this bill passed. Um, I'd like people to know as well, a post for the dogs and for Ron, who's done a marvellous job in this area, that um, that my country uh, and the Americans um, still don't pay for the, for the treatment of injured dogs that they've received perhaps in war after they retire. It's up to the handler that mm. they retire to or the family. And, and I think um, that's a bit shameful myself in, in a lot of areas. Um, the, unfortunately, the Bill of Rights that was passed by President Obama had the word may in it. So the, the politicians have chose to utilise that word may and they don't actually, in many cases, fund the, um, the treatment of um, veteran dogs. Mm. I think that's a great segue because that's what we're going to talk about in the third segment. So, yeah. Nigel, we'll close out this one and then uh, we'll be back. And then on the third segment of this, this series with Nigel Alsop, we're going to talk about 
what happens about dogs that take care of us that come home. Mm. Sarah, do you have any questions for Nigel? Because you've been so you've been I've so been conspicuous so that you're never quiet. I know I'm never quiet. You've I don't always know. got I've something been, cool to say. I have to say that I'm enjoying the stories a lot. I keep thinking about my own farm. So I have a farm, right? We talked about that at the beginning. Well, the first segment we talked about yes. that, um, that I have animals. And so I have quite a few horses and a lot of cats. And actually just this morning I was thinking, so I have this one little cat and she's little tiny and she's a all black cat. She's pretty special. She's my, my little tiny Iris. And she crawls up on me every single morning and is purring and just sits on my shoulder and purrs. And I think how comforting that is and how warm and soft she yeah. is. And what a great way to start my day to have. Yeah. And she is, it's unconditional love. Like she just is there, just living her best life every single morning, just hanging out on my shoulder. And how unconditional yeah. that is. All I keep thinking about is how these animals are just... They're doing, everything's unconditional, and there's not a bad bone in their body. They're just living their life, doing the best they can to help people. And, and the cat is a lot, uh, more, I, a lot more convenient yeah. than a 300-pound Vietnamese <laughs> pot-bellied pig. <laughs> and a lot more cuddly. If you, if, you, if you ever want to find out an interesting story about cats, if you're a cat lover, uh, look up uh, the, the mascot cat of the Bismarck, the famous World War II battleship. Okay. Um, it's where the, literally the nine lives of a cat theory I think comes from um, obviously the cat was um, was one of the, the few survivors when the Bismarck was sunk uh, a British naval vessel picked up the survivors and the cat oh. which unfortunately a short time later was sunk itself with all hands uh, apart from three sailors and you guessed it the cat it was picked <laughs> up by a third, it was picked up by a second British ship um, that was again torpedoed and sunk the same day a short time later and went down with all hands, wow. except for uh, one or two sailors and the cat. And the cat. Um, on its way <laughs> to England, again, it was picked up before a merchant ship. Just as it arrived before the coast of Ireland, it, it was sunk, that ship, by enemy aircraft. All hands went down, apart from half, half a dozen sailors and the cat. And the cat. <laughs> when, when, they, when the British Navy finally got the cat to land, they banned it from ever going to see again and this German cat became the Royal Navy's at Plymouth mascot, official mascot. I was going to say, is it bad? Maybe the cat was bad luck. No, the cat, the, the cat, well, it's true. The cat could have been bad luck. <laughs> that oh. poor cat. Okay, Nigel, I'm going to end this segment. We're going to, we're going to, we're going to come back on a third segment at some point in the future. Uh, thank you, Nigel. And we'll be back uh, on uh, rotations with Nigel later. Uh, bye. Rotations is an experiment in student medical journalism. Rotations is the weekly podcast of all things medicine and science and is part of the media and medicine family of medical storytelling. The opinions and comments expressed on Rotations do not reflect the official or unofficial positions of Ohio University, the Ohio University Heritage College of Osteopathic Medicine, or the Scripps College of Communications. Guests on rotations are interviewed in an unopposed fashion so that their ideas and opinions can be freely expressed. Rotations is produced by Todd Frederick. Rotations is co-hosted by a league of champions of all things medical and a few people we pull off the street. Rotations is copyrighted and while we welcome citations, tweets, Facebook likes and other endorsements via word of mouth and social media, we reserve all rights to content. You may use Rotations content 
under the provisions of Creative Commons, but you cannot alter or edit the content in any manner without exp express permission of the content creators, and you must cite rotations as the source of any content derived from the po podcast. We welcome you any comments, and you can contact us by emailing us at rotationspodcast at gmail.com, tweeting us at rotationspcast, or by visiting media in, in medicine.com slash rotations. I've also had a curious rumor, too, about there's at least one municipality I can think of that's doing in-field CT scans for neurological injuries like stroke. And yeah, so CT scanners on the back of ambulances is the, the newest shiny object that's, uh, that's going around. Yeah. Uh, there, are, there are places that have had remarkable success. Um, there are others that are, that are looking to really define the, to define the niche.